0: Well, let's have our Bible reading from Philippians and chapter 1. We've got a little series on Philippians going for about six, maybe seven weeks before we resume our Romans series. And last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of Philippians, and this morning, we're going to try and take in the rest of the first chapter. So Philippians chapter 1 from verse 12. Let's hear the word of God. Oh, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. But whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's true and trustworthy word. Mark it in your Bibles. We're going to turn back to it uh, after we've sung our next song. What a beautiful name it is! What a wonderful name it is! What a powerful name it is! The name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the greatest person who has ever walked on planet Earth. And Philippians is all about Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 27, and here we will see what it is to have a Christ-centered life, to have Christ fill your life. That's what the Christian wants. We want to build our world around him. He's our night. He's our day. He's every prayer we pray. Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul mentions in this passage, For me to live is Christ. So, what does that mean? For me to live is Christ. What does it mean to have a Christ centered life? What are the marks? Of a Christ centered life. I think there are four here in this passage of Scripture. There are more scattered around other parts of Scripture, but we're going to pick out four. And frustratingly, we're not going to be able to look at all the verses uh, here, but let's look at four things that show a Christ centered life mission, message, magnify, and manner. I felt like Keith Stenner then as I had the alliteration. Let's think, first of all, a Christ-filled life involves, first, being on a mission to advance the gospel to other people. A mission. Look what Paul says in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This was big in Paul's life to advance the gospel. Jesus had said, before he left earth and went to heaven, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He'd also said to his disciples in Jerusalem, he said, well, you begin at Jerusalem, but then you go to Judea, and then you go to Samaria, and then you go to the ends of the earth. Jesus never, ever envisaged the gospel staying to one people group in one part of planet Earth. His vision was for the gospel to go out in ever-increasing circles that the gospel would advance. And that's Paul's vision here as well. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, to move it on to progress it, and to spread it. And so Paul gives a little bit of testimony. He says there in verse 12 that what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And so we ask the obvious question, well, what had happened to Paul? He says, what's happened to me? What's happened to him? Well, the Apostle Paul was in Philippi in around about AD 50-51. He was now, when he wrote this letter to them, in a prison in Rome in about A.D. 60, 61. So ten years had passed since Paul had been with the Philippians. A lot had happened to him during those ten years. Mainly, a lot of suffering. He had been accused falsely. He'd had major opposition. There was a riot because of him. There was a kidnap plot of which he was the subject. He'd been in a shipwreck. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been beaten up numerous times, stoned and left for dead, and suffered a poisonous snake bite as well. A lot had happened to him. And now in Rome, as he's writing to the Philippians, he says he's in chains. Verse 13, 14, and 17 says, I'm in chains for Christ. Now, the Romans did that when they imprisoned people. They didn't just put them behind bars, they put them in chains. In Acts chapter 12, you read that the apostle Peter was chained with two chains. And in Acts chapter 21, you read that the apostle Paul was also bound with two chains. What kind of chains? Heavy, no doubt. Certainly uncomfortable. And those shackles... Well, they must have been rusty and full of iron and they were ankle and wrist shredding shackles. Paul was not in a good condition in the Roman prison. It was horrible for him. And what's more, he was innocent. He was in prison simply because the Jewish and the Roman authorities hated him. And they wanted to stop him preaching the gospel of Christ. And one of the third ways they thought they would stop him by putting him in chains, denying him of his freedom, putting him in prison. So he was in prison so that the gospel wouldn't advance. But it backfired on the authorities. God worked it for good. What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You see, the gospel is not chained. And the gospel advanced through Paul in two ways there in that Roman prison. In verse 13, the whole Roman guard heard the gospel. Look at verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. In putting Paul in prison amongst this palace guard, Paul had a whole lot of new people to evangelize. The palace guard were hand-picked soldiers. They were from among the best. They had to protect Caesar himself. And and because um, the Romans thought that Paul was a political prisoner, therefore a threat to Caesar, so the palace guard watched over Paul. The palace guard were very, very powerful. In Rome, they became extremely powerful. You didn't mess with the palace guard. And the palace guard guarding Paul got to hear the gospel. See, what did they observe in Paul? What what kind of criminal did they think he was? Most of the prisoners, I guess, would be claiming their innocence all the time, protesting their ill treatment. They would have been rebellious and hostile. They would have moaned all the time. But, But not Paul. When they came to look at Paul, they just found out he was in chains for Christ. What did that mean? Maybe they asked him. And he would have told them. He spoke to them more than just about the latest chariot race of the day or the celebrity gladiators of the day. He would have spoken of Christ. And the gospel went through the ranks of the palace guard because Paul was in chains. He reached a whole people group that he would never have had access to had he not been in prison. But the second way that the gospel advanced there is in verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Have you ever thought about sharing the gospel as a dare? (laughs) We hear it as a command and as a challenge, and, and it certainly is that. But dare to tell the gospel, I dare you. I dare me, tell the gospel. And, and so Paul, he dared to tell the gospel there in prison. And the other Christians in uh, Rome who heard about Paul and would have come and probably trying to give him some food and a little bit of comfort, um, they saw what Paul was suffering. And they would have gone back to their churches in Rome and they would have said, do you know, the apostle He's there in prison, he's, he's got shackles on him, he's, he's cold, he's hungry, but he's preaching the gospel. Isn't that great? And then all, all, all the other people around in the church would have said, well, if he's doing that in prison, surely we can do it in freedom. It happens, doesn't it? When, when, when you're a little bit timid about doing something, you see someone else doing that very thing that you've got to do, and they're doing it okay. It gives you a bit of courage to go through and do it. And that's what these Christians in Rome did. They saw Paul suffering for the gospel. And Paul inspired a whole generation of Christians to preach the gospel. In 1956, a man called Jim Elliott was a missionary. Uh, he went with four other missionaries to a place called Ecuador, and he sought to preach the gospel. But as soon as they landed, they were killed by the Orca Indians. News of this spread back to the college that they used to go to in America, Wheaton College. And in the next few years, a very high number of Wheaton graduates offered themselves for the mission field. What had happened to Jim Elliot inspired a whole generation of missionaries. By our actions, by our courage in the things that happened to us, we can inspire people to stand firm for the gospel and advance it. The Apostle Paul learned to see that the things that had happened to him advanced the gospel. I wonder if we, with the eye of faith, could actually think the same about ourselves and the things that happen to us because things happen to us that we wouldn't choose for ourselves sometimes terrible things can happen to us broken homes broken families maybe deep suffering in the past or even in the present hospital appointments endless hospital appointments accidents disasters our sins maybe we thought they've ruined our life and They still come back with horrid memories. Our waywardness before we were Christians. All kinds of things have happened to us in the past. How do we look on them? How about if we looked on them as the Apostle Paul looked on the things that had happened to him? That actually the things that have happened to us and are happening to us now can actually serve to advance the gospel. Maybe it can give us sympathy for a people group, even in our own community, that we'd never have sympathy for if we hadn't gone through the same thing. maybe as we stand firm in the midst of our hospital treatment or suffering and illness, that we show that we haven't turned away from Christ. That inspires someone else who's suffering. Now don't look upon our sufferings and tragedies and the past with despair. Rather, see that what has happened to you and to me as God using it to advance the gospel through you and me. A Christ centered life seeks to advance the gospel in mission. Secondly, a Christ filled life will rejoice when the message of Christ is preached. The message. Let's look at verses 15 to 18. In these verses, we read about Christ being preached. Verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now the latter do so out of love. I'm so glad. Knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. It's two groups of people. So some, as we said, lived to advance the gospel with good motives and good reason, but there's another group there, and we're not quite sure who this group was, but there's another group there who thought, if we preach Christ, we're going to cause trouble for Paul. Now, how that would happen, I'm not sure, but their motive was so evil. It's like they were against Paul, and yet Christ was heard through their selfish preaching. Paul talks about preaching Christ three times in these verses. He says, Christ is preached, Christ is preached, Christ is preached. That was a constant in Paul's ministry. Certainly in his life, we will see when we get to chapter 3 that Paul says, I want to know Christ. We know in his preaching, he once said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, Christ was the theme of his life and the theme of his song and the theme of his preaching. Why? Because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. That in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Why did Paul want to preach Christ? Because Christ is very great. Also Christ is the only saviour. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Paul wrote that the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So when Christ is preached, Paul rejoices. No matter what the motive, no matter who the person is, if they're preaching Christ, Paul rejoices. He rejoiced, even if it was from the wrong people with the wrong motives. A Christ-filled life rejoices when Christ is made known. So often as Christians and as churches, we are so quick to criticise other Christians and other churches that we don't quite agree with. And and so often we say, I won't even sing the songs from a certain Christian stable or certain Christian background because I don't like what they're doing. But does Christ come through in their songs? Rejoice. Those raving charismatics up the road or wherever. Those, those stodgy, reformed dinosaurs down the road. Uh, there's no reference to geogra- ge- geography in this location, by the way. <laughs> the Church of England with their bells and smells, the, the noisy Pentecostals, the traditional Methodists. Oh, bang, bang, shoot them down. Bang, bang, shoot them down. Bang, bang. The Christians shot me down. I was so quick to do that. It's so easy to do that. But is Christ preached? Be like the Apostle Paul. Whatever motive, whatever motive, I rejoice. Doesn't mean to say you agree with them. But it does mean to say that you rejoice if Christ is heard. A Christ-filled life rejoices in the message of Christ. Thirdly, a Christ-filled person has a desire to magnify Christ. Verse 19 to 26, but we're just use at the moment. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, the word that the NIV has for exalt is uh, translated in other versions as magnify, for which I'm grateful because then I can get my alliteration. The, the actual Greek word that's used comes from the root of a word where we get mega from. Mega, very large, huge, mega celebrities, mega rich, mega trucks, megabytes, millions of them. And the NIV speaks about exalting, which does mean magnifying or enlarging. So, so you've been out somewhere, maybe on a holiday or a, a weekend away or an event, so you've been invited out and... And you get your phone, you get your camera, and you just snap away. It's just so easy to take 30 pictures within 10 seconds these days. You just snap away and snap away. You take pictures of nice people, nice food, nice locations, nice scenery, uh, and just snap, 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 or click, click, click. (laughs) And then then you get home, and you look through. You scroll through all the photos you've taken, And, and you look at some of them, and you think, well, that's nice. I'll keep that one. Uh, You look at another one and you think, do I really look like that? (laughs) It's got to be the angle of the camera, it's not me. You look at another one and you think, oh yeah, that's funny, I remember that made me laugh. And you look at another one and you think, it's terrible, delete, delete, delete. But you might look at one or two and you think, yeah, that's really good. I'm going to magnify that. I'm going to enlarge it and even put it on my, I'm going to print it out and even put it on my wall. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to be a printout of Christ. I want to magnify Christ. I want to exalt Christ in my life or death. That was his desire. But there seems some uncertainty in him. For he says in verse 20, whether by life or by death, whether I live or whether I die. He says in verse 22, if I am to go on living in the body. If. So he didn't know whether he was going to live or die when he wrote this to the Philippians. It seems to be some doubt whether he was going to remain alive or die. And the Apostle Paul didn't quite know what was going to happen to him. See, in a Roman prison there, it would have been Caesar's verdict. If Caesar found Paul guilty, he'd die. If Caesar said that Paul was innocent, he'd live. And Paul doesn't know. Am I going to live? or I'm going to die. But whichever happens to him, it's a win-win situation. For he says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if I carry on living, it's for Jesus. If I die, I'll go to be with Jesus. And he's really wondering, what's best? Verse 22, what shall I choose? I don't know. He says, verse 23, I am torn between the two. Do I want to go on living or do I want to die? I don't know what's best. His personal desire, though, surprisingly, maybe for us, is that he wants to die. Verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ what a desire. Why? Because to die is gain. I wonder if we really believe that. <laughs> to die is gain. There's a, a sermon that I read uh, quite often. It's by, I love reading the, the Puritans uh, from the, they lived in the 1600s and a typical Puritan dull kind of cover. Um, uh, Thomas Brooks, one of my favorite Puritans, has six volumes of his writings and his sermons. And he's got in this one a sermon called, A Believer's Last Day is Their Best Day. And he subtitles it, A Believer's Dying Day is Better Than Their Birthday. Well, you say, typical Puritan, (laughs) very morbid. But actually, the, the sermon that he writes is so wonderful. I, I, I read this on the, on the night that my mum my died. I was with her all day uh, on the Friday, most of the day on the Friday, and then it was, it was COVID time. So you had these inhuman restrictions where we weren't allowed to stay, so we had to go home and leave her. And I got a phone call about two o'clock in the morning saying she died. I got up straight away, went down to my bookcase, and got Dr. Brooks off the shelf. <laughs> And I read this sermon. A believer's dying day is better than their birthday. And being a Puritan, he has about 25 points as to why that is true. Let me give you four of them. Death is a change of place. We go from earth to heaven. Two. Death is a change of company. We go from people that annoy us or are wicked To perfected saints and angels. Three, death is a change of employment. We go from struggling to resting. Four, death is a change of enjoyments. We go from imperfect, incomplete enjoyments to perfect and complete bliss. And there's lots more too. To die is gain. You've got to have faith to believe that. The Apostle Paul did. I desire to depart and be with Christ. It's better by far. And you can understand why he said that. Remember his position? He was in a Roman prison. He was uh, suffering terribly. There were chains and pains and hunger and cold and loneliness and no freedom. So for him, death would have been such a relief. For him, death would have been better by far than to be where he was in that Roman prison. Death would have meant the end of chains and pains and suffering and loneliness and cold. And so he says, I desire to depart. And I can fully understand a Christian who is going through deep, deep suffering and who's in such pain in life and who gets people visiting them, but there's, there's sad, long faces all around them. They're trying to encourage them. And I can understand a Christian who's feeling, look, you know, what can I do in life? I can't do anymore. I can understand that Christian saying, I really want to die and be with the Lord. It's better by far. I can really understand that. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. This prison, hate it. I want to be with Jesus. But you know, the Apostle Paul, he didn't die. Well, he did in the end. <laughs> but he lived. And so he knew, again with faith that if he was going to continue living, then God must have a purpose for him. So look what he says in verse 24. It's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, he knew that if the Lord kept him alive, then Christ was going to be magnified in his life and body. If the Lord kept him alive, then he's going to live a Christ-filled life. If the Lord kept him alive, it would be good, maybe not so much for him, but for other people. And that is the mind of Jesus, as we will see next week in chapter 2. The mind of Christ is all about others. So Paul says, okay, I want to die. It's going to be much better. But I'm prepared to live because it will be better for you. If the Lord is keeping us alive which he obviously is at the moment, (laughs) if the Lord is going to keep us alive, then it must be for the good of other people what other people can learn from you in your suffering and as they serve you in your suffering. A Christ-filled life magnifies Christ both in life and in death. There's a fourth thing as well It can be said a little bit quicker. A Christ-filled life is a life that lives in a manner worthy of Jesus. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, God is concerned with the way that we live on earth. Um, See, people, and, and this is really quite scary, people will judge our God by us. That's what they do, because we're his representatives. It's very strange that God should decide that his ambassadors on earth are you and me, that 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 we represent God on earth. That that's an awesome thing. See, we judge a company by its representatives on the phone. We judge a shop by the salespeople. We judge a team by its players. We judge a hospital by its staff. If we get bad service on the phone, if people are rude to us on the phone or in the shop or whatever we're trying to do, then we will say that company is rubbish. Don't, have, don't get your insurance there or don't go and buy your shoes from that shop or don't use that advisor or that bank. They're, they're rubbish. Why? They've been rude to me. So we judge the whole of the company by one person. And it's the same with God. People cannot see God, but they see us, and we claim we belong to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this, Be careful, for as you walk the streets of London, you carry the reputation of God in your hands. So Paul says, there is a manner of conduct that we should have that brings glory to God. He uses two words, conduct and worthy. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This word for conduct is where we get our word politics from. It's used to, uh, to refer to administering civil affairs or behaving as a citizen of, of, of a nation. And politics, so we're told, is about the whole of life, this conduct. And the word worthy is where we get our philosophical word, Axiom from. And an axiom is a self evident truth, a well established truth. And so Paul is telling us to live our lives in a way that is established by the gospel. Live our lives in a way that it is self evident that we belong to God. Be axiomatic and political in the way we live. Political for the kingdom of heaven. Axiomatic. Not to argue with philosophers, but to demonstrate the love of God. Live in such a way that people see Jesus in us. And what is that way? Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and day and night his four marks of a christ-centered life we're on a mission to advance the gospel we have a message to rejoice in about christ the savior we seek to magnify jesus either by life or by death and we seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ who is up to this (laughs) it's tough it's hard So we need to lean on Christ. We need to abide in Christ. We need to live near Christ. We need to turn our eyes regularly on Jesus. Well, may the Lord help us to live that Christ-filled life that we've been thinking about and talking about, being on a mission for Jesus, rejoicing when he is preached, magnifying him whether in life or death, and seeking to live a a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And may God help us to be darers, dare to tell the gospel. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of us evermore. Amen.